0: All-sustaining God, where else shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. For we cannot live by bread alone, but need every word that comes from your mouth. For all scripture is breathed out by you for our benefit. So teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What's your passion? You get asked that. I get asked that. What's your passion? What are you passionate about? The way we answer that is very different than early Christians would have answered that. I, in my past more so, as I get older and can do less, um, (laughs) it's less of my passion. When I was younger, my passion was baseball. And because it was my passion, I ate, slept, drank baseball. I thought baseball. I watched baseball. I practiced baseball. There was always a bat in my room so I could pick it up and get familiar with its feel and practice a swing or two. There was a lot that it takes to train the body to do something well. My passion was baseball. Um, your passion might be God. Your passion might be hiking. Your passion might be fitness or wellness. Your passion is, there's so many things we can have passions for. But when we tend to talk about passions, we tend to talk about something that we have this intense desire for. I have an intense desire for this, so it's my passion. But the sinful passions that we'll be looking at are not those. In fact, they work in a different way. They are more like something that has an intense desire for us. So, when I say the passion of gluttony or lust or greed or anger or apathy, I am not saying I have this intense desire for apathy. It's the complete reverse. It's that these sins have an intense desire to have me. That's what we mean by the passions. You don't want to become the passion of the devil. Because Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. He wants to sink his fangs into us. And these fangs have names. These fangs have names. Gluttony, lust, greed, anger, apathy, despondency, self-esteem in an imbalanced way, and Pride. These are the eight fangs. These are the eight schemes, if you will, of the devil. And these are what he is using to get us in captivity. So the passions are enslavement to the sins we surrender to. When I surrender myself to a struggle, a temptation, I surrender myself to that sin, it becomes a passion and it has me. It means that I become passive. That's actually what the root of passion means, is passive. I become its puppet. I become, to sound grotesque, I become its plaything. That's what it means to surrender to a passion. I gain a, I gain, I lose, I lose, I gain a loss of self-control, of self-direction. I no longer have that freedom. I am now told what to think. I'm told what to desire. That's the passion So um, the way that Evagrius, the solitary, he was the first to write down such a list that got copied over and over until it gradually was consolidated into seven, Um, but he originally had eight, and he called them, um, he actually called them the eight thoughts, and he uh, referred to them as eight cracks in our hearts, eight cracks in our hearts. You'll notice that our, our graphic for the series is trying to portray that with my, my great clip art um, graphic design. Um, it's got a heart and there's cracks coming out of it. And these are what, these the, the passions are the eight cracks of the heart. I mean, we have these vulnerabilities. We have these weaknesses because we're broken. And what sin wants to do is enter into those cracks and open them up, widen them and exploit us. And so these are our vulnerabilities. Uh, These are, in other words, things to look out for. Be vigilant about these eight thoughts, about these eight passions, about these eight, uh, some of the early fathers talked about devils. They referred to the passions as devils that are trying to get into the cracks of the heart and ruin our progress with God. Um, they write very graphically. It's very fun. If you want to read some of them, I can, I can tip you off somewhere. But um, they're very, very playful in how it's grotesque, really, just the way that we're trying to be uh, seized by sin and demons. Um, so how do, these, how do these happen? Like passions render us passive, but they don't just happen. It's not like I'm just walking around one day and boom, I'm seized by despondency. It just happened to me. No, no, no. The passions do not take hold of us without our consent. Never without our consent. So here's how they start. And this is why Evagrius called them the thoughts. They start as thoughts. You have a thought for lust. You have a thought for greed. You have a thought for getting others to think very well of you, self-esteem. The thought is not a sin. The thought is from without us. The thought is coming to us and is trying to get into those cracks in our hearts. There's a moment then when we must wrestle with the thought because the thought is trying to lure us to participate in its activity. When I, consent, consent, when I give my consent to the thought, I have sinned. The thought itself is not a sin. If you think greedy thoughts okay, watch out. That's not yet a sin. It's trying to get into you. But when I give my consent to it, when I begin to now delight in thinking about it and then eventually carry it out, that is when it becomes a sin. So it starts as thoughts, but then it turns into sin when we give our consent. That's when it then takes over us. And then that leads us to captivity when the passion has its way with us. Thoughts, sin, captivity. This is actually how James describes it in James chapter 1, verse 14. He says that each person is tempted when he is, first, lured and enticed by his own desire. The thought comes. It's enticing. It's trying to lure you. Then James says, then the desire, second, when it has conceived... You give your consent to it. That's consensual sex is kind of a big thing, right, in our culture. Um, you give your consent, you conceive. You see how graphic the scriptures can actually get with the idea of sin. You're coupling with it. Um, when, it, when, it when Then the desire, when it has conceived, so you've given yourself over to it, it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, third, it brings forth a death. And that is captivity. That is a passion. It, it produces death in our lives. Death because it cuts us off from the life of God. Death because it captivates us and we no longer have freedom in the life of God. It produces death. So the passions, to summarize our introduction to this concept, are not something that's inside of us. There's something that's outside of us. And here, this is important. If the passions actually were inside of me, it would actually pit me against God because the passions dwelling in me would mean that I am evil and that since, I am, since this is what I am, I am now an enemy of God and he's, we're pitting, I'm pitting myself against him because I'm evil. But if they're without me, if they're on the outside and they are brought in by me, then that means that I have hurt myself. I have this union and this relationship with God, but then I harm myself by giving into a passion. And now the God who loves me and feels a severance between us wants to bring me back in. So rather than us being enemies, he's reaching out to me with mercy He wants to not be, he's not standing there like a judge saying, all right, um, well, punishment's coming. No, mercy. No, no. He's standing there as a doctor saying, you need treatment. And I say, yes, mercy. I need your treatment. See, mercy is not deliverance from an angry God. Mercy is deliverance from the death of sin. And that's why we pray for mercy. I have eight cracks, Father. Father. Apply the balm on me. Heal these wounds. Have mercy on me. This is how Jesus described himself when the Pharisees were like, you're hanging out with sinners. like God can't do that. Well, Matthew 9, Jesus replies, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So brothers and sisters, as we go through the eight passions and you start to feel very sinful, good news. Jesus came for you. He's the doctor wanting to heal the sinner, not the judge angrily banging his gavel and saying, how dare you? Why did you? This is what we're going to be exploring. Ways to keep our life in God going by battling and keeping vigilance against these passions. So, um, the schemes of the devil, Ephesians six, stand with the form of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I love the King James on that one: the wiles of the devil, the wiles. Because uh, the cartoon Looney Tune cartoon has Coyote and Roadrunner. Coyote's named Wily Coyote. He's the, he's the he represents the wiles of the devil. Um, so these passions are the devil's toolkit. You identify these. You name these in your life, the devil's frustrated because he's like, ah, i got to find a new knife now to get into his cracks. Because they become sealed, and it needs to be a finer tip each time. So tonight, so we're going to go through the eight. Tonight, um, we're going to start with gluttony. Gluttony is the one we're going to do tonight. This is actually very appropriate because tonight we have a potluck, so yay, watch what you eat. I will be watching you. Um, Second, (laughs) second, second. we are on the cusp of Lent. Wednesday starts Lent. Wednesday means if you are participating in a fast, we begin fasting. So gluttony is a perfect one to look at because this is one of the areas that we need to shore up in our lives. (laughs) Um, Now, gluttony was listed first in the original lists, and it was very wisely listed first. You'll hear why in a bit. But gluttony is the first one to tackle and one we must tackle. Now, I understand. We see the word gluttony on the screen. We go, oh my goodness, this is not going to be a sermon for me. Oh my goodness. This is going to be a long, like unrelevant one. No, no, no. It's totally relevant because gluttony is not about how much we eat. Gluttony is about why we eat. Now, yes, gluttony can be about how much we eat, but all those grotesque pictures you see from the medieval ages of gluttony personified as this like, gross, big, fat man like stuffing himself and just, things are just drooling down, like grease is staining his shirt. Like, that, that image of gluttony actually makes us think, oh, I'm not a glutton. Gluttony is not how much we eat, it's why we eat. Here's an example. When we seek to eat out of easy comfort... When we seek to eat as a form of comfort without confronting the deeper emptiness inside of us, that's gluttony. Because the devil is saying, oh, you're feeling very discomforted with yourself right now. You feel lonely. Eat something. You feel guilty. Eat something. You feel sad. Eat something. You just bought ice cream. It's not going to get eaten sitting there. You feel bored. Eat something. You feel like something's not right in your life. Eat something. Why? Because when I go to eat that, I'm looking for comfort. I would say the majority of our, I don't know, I'm not going to say that. Um, We do eat too much out of comfort. And this becomes a distraction from, the, from confronting those things that we actually need to be confronting. The devil, in other words, is using your belly, he's using your stomach to distract you from your soul. This is why I say gluttony is not just how much we eat, it's why we eat. And often you will overeat because there comes a point when you have to eat more to feel deeper comfort because the way you're eating is not actually bringing lasting comfort. And of course the stomach grows and it takes more to eat to get, like, of course that's a part of it. But why are we eating? If we're seeking comfort and not looking deeper at the real hunger, we just said together, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Oh, but how the devil would rather keep you thinking about your stomach Blessed are you if you never feel hunger all day long. In fact, our culture even tries to get us to believe that we'll be healthier if we snack all day long. I've been there. I've done that. And I think it's a lie. I think we're better off closing our mouths for stretches of time. But I'm not a health expert. I'm just a soul expert. Or a striving soul expert, we should say. Um, Gluttony, therefore, is a madness of the stomach. It's a madness of the stomach. It's out of order. St. John of Sinai, who had a wonderful chapter on gluttony, I'll be quoting a few of his great memorable lines. He called his own stomach this. He called it his boisterous evil lord. His boisterous evil lord. It's always talking to us, isn't it? But it's always trying to tell us when to eat. It even controls your mind and makes you start thinking about your next meal, or, oh, get a snack, or you see, you see that shiny wrapper, or you hear it, the crinkle. The marketers are smart. They know what they're doing. They know how to trigger our appetites, and we fall into the passion of gluttony when we're controlled by these things, rather than actually eating these we need to eat, or because, yeah, I'm bored. I'm gonna hear that crinkling uh, chip bag. Those are ways that gluttony can get to us. So again, it exaggerates the need of our stomach to distract us from the deeper needs of our soul. That's why John calls it the boisterous evil Lord. It's a distraction and it's totally exaggerating the need. Trust me, like when I started fasting, I had to learn this, that their first grumble does not actually mean you are hungry. The stomachs are saying, I'm usually getting something about now. Notice me. And fasting is a chance to stop noticing it and notice your soul for a change. And like you can actually push through those initial and go a, little, a lot longer. Now it'll get worse each time it comes back because the stomach's gonna get angrier and angrier because gluttony is a madness of the stomach. Um, so, speaking of it as a distraction, of getting us to focus away from our soul, there's a wonderful passage in the screw tape letters. It's actually in the first chapter in which we see the power that. Um, the darkness of the spiritual forces can have on us with gluttony. And Screwtape is a senior demon writing to a junior demon. He's relating a time when he almost lost his man. He's a sound atheist, and he almost lost him to Christianity. And he had a good trick up his sleeve. Here's the passage. He says this. Remember that he, your human, is not like you, a pure spirit. Never having been a human, oh, that abominable advantage of the enemies. You don't realize how enslaved they are to the pressure of the ordinary. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day, as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. If I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. And he goes on to say how the man said, Good idea. This thought is too important for an empty stomach. I'm going to go eat. And then by the time he's going to go eat, he's totally forgotten. These things that were pulling him into the deeper questions of his soul. And then Screwtape closes that section by saying, He is now safe in our Father's house below. So, what's the big deal with gluttony? And why does it matter? Why does God care about what we are putting in our mouths? One reason is that, that gluttony is a problem is that it begets gluttony. Gluttony begets gluttony. So, Um, When we begin seeking food for comfort rather than confronting the deeper questions or issues of our soul, then we actually get in this cycle of needing to return to gluttony and intensify gluttony, as I've already alluded to. Because we have this deep sense that we're not well, the world's not well, we have these questions, we know we're going to die, we feel vulnerable, someone said something mean about us, nobody's giving us the attention we deserve, someone else got the promotion, I can't find a house, yada, 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 all these things are going on. And so we know that eating makes us feel better, because just back in the past when you innocently enjoyed that wonderful chocolate bar from the company in Brooklyn called (laughs) Raqqa, They're endorsing me. I'm just kidding. Um, what You remember how good you felt. Or when you piled on the chocolate sauce on that ice cream and then added bananas and peanut butter, because who doesn't like peanut butter? Um, you remember how good it made you feel. And so when we feel down and when there's insecurity amongst us, then our stomach says, wait a minute, I have a solution. And we remember that. So we go to these things that make us feel better. But of course, um, that doesn't cure the actual inner hunger of the soul. It's going to keep gurgling and raising these questions. We have to confront it. So it's going to come back up. And you're like, well, okay, I'll go back to that. That made me feel good. And then you keep going back every time you need to feel better. So it becomes this dependency and this comfort. But here's the problem. The more you keep turning to it for comfort, yes, one, you're going to continually starve your soul and you're not going to ever give it the attention it needs. But second, you're going to start to feel terrible about yourself because you're going to become aware that you are impassioned by this need for comfort through what you're putting in your mouth. And then you're going to feel even worse because you're going to realize all I am is a non-productive consumer who stuffs my mouth. And you're going to realize like, I'm in a, this is not what I was made for. So you repeat the cycle. You have no, You don't know what else to do. And one of the problems we have, I think we are in a very hard spot in our time and in our age and in our culture because food is so accessible. Food is... Literally everywhere. It's everywhere. You just go to an innocent little meeting at work, and there's like donuts in there, or there's nuts, or there's there's just food everywhere. It's considered rude in our culture to have people over or at a conference or an event and not have food. That's where we are. Food is everywhere. Not only that, but um, we tend to carry easily wrapped food with us everywhere we go because we've made food so easy to take with us. And oh man, I'm hungry. I forgot something. Well, there's a vending machine right there. Just a few quarters and it's yours. That's, that, it makes it hard because we have so many easy options to find comfort. And I believe we are numbing the voice of God in our soul because we are constantly thinking about the stomach first. Even, and again, this, again, this is not how much we eat. It's why we eat. The uh, second reason that gluttony is a problem is that gluttony is the gateway. It's the gateway to all the other passions. This is why the first list that came out put gluttony first. Because the early Christians who were studying, literally, like the monks who spent all their life studying their souls and how it's pulled into sin, they all put gluttony as the first in the list. Because they recognized that this was the gateway this was why. This was how we get pulled into other things. So if I'm finding comfort in my stomach, that feels better. But then I still I, there's still a need. Okay, so now I'm going to find comfort in my senses, lust. Then I'm going to find comfort in my material surroundings, greed. Then I'm going to find comfort emotionally by making sure everyone does what I want, or I'll get angry. Then I find comfort. It just goes down the road. The the gluttony leads us to all the other passions. Um, that's not to say you can't be angry while you're fasting like you can still be angry it's not like you have to go through these in order but often gluttony will be a chain reaction to the others here's how john of sinai talked about gluttony Um, he said that gluttony is the prince of our missteps it is the gateway of the passions it is the leader to corruption. It is the ruler of the passions. If we, quote, he says, if we investigate the subject, we will discover that it is the belly alone which is the source of all human shipwrecks. Is that an overstatement? Well, he gives us some examples. Gluttony was the stumbling block of Adam. God's first command was Eat anything you want, but don't eat that. That's fasting. Just don't eat that. What did Adam do? He ate that. It's the stumbling block of Adam. It is the destruction of Esau. Genesis 25. He gave up his birthright for lentil soup. It is the sin of the Israelites. Exodus 16. They grumbled against God because there was no leeks and onions and in and out in the wilderness. Then they got manna. And then in Numbers chapter 11, they complain about the manna. This stupid manna is dry. It's boring. We're tired of graham crackers. Give us meat. And then God gives them meat and it becomes a curse that's coming into their mouths. Um, It's also also the disgrace of Noah lying naked, Genesis 9. Of course, gluttony is not just food, right? It could be drink. So no, Jim, I don't have that kind of a drinking problem, but yes, a water drinking problem, maybe. Um, it is also the destruction of the sons of Eli. Lesser known, but in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God judges the house of Eli, the high priest, because his sons would actually abuse the sacrificial system. And they would, when people brought the offerings, they would just, a certain portion was supposed to be given to the priest, but they would just demand the best portions and tell the people how to give it to them. And the people like, that's not what God says. Like, this is what I say. Give it to me, gluttony. Me. Um, but there's one more that he did not mention and I will mention, and that is the blindness of Isaac. Gluttony is the blindness of Isaac. I would like to look at this passage with you guys. Uh, It's very familiar, but I don't know if you've ever noticed the huge emphasis in this passage on food. So just go ahead and count every time you see a reference to eating or food as we read it. This is Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he said, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Already there's three. There's going to be more. Now, no, though, we're told right away he's blind. Yes, okay, he's old. He's literally losing his eyesight, but he's also losing the inner capability to perceive what's happening I mean, you and I know, we read, we've read this since we are kids, right? And we're, I, my question is always, how dumb can you be to be duped by this? This is the easiest thing to detect. You're lying. You're Jacob. You're not Esau. I mean, goodness, furries. Who really has hair like a goat? Right? Honestly, like, was that really going to fool Isaac? But here's the lesson which we're about to see being subtly told. When we give in to our stomach, the soul can't detect these things. We are blind more than just in our eyes. So we continue and we see in verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare for them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. This man in his older age has just been given over to his appetite. And you'll notice they're making preparations to get the best goats, two, young, two good young goats, and to make this good for him, like delicious food that he loves. 10, verse 10, And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebecca's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. Now, senses are another, uh, this is a sub-theme in this. You'll see smelling and feeling, um, but yeah, it's, it kind of goes with the senses um, of eating. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. I'll only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went and took them, and brought them to his mother, and his, and, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved then rebecca took some took the best garments of esau her older son which were with her in the house and put them on jacob her younger son and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son jacob so when he went in to his father, he said, My father, now, I don't care how good you are at voice copying. A father knows his children's voice. You can't imitate Esau's voice. My father, he, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. And I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. Now, subtly, the text is telling you without saying this. He also didn't recognize him because he has been given into his appetite. He only knows how to feel the stomach. He can't feel with his senses anymore. He relies on his senses, but he cannot rely on anything else. that's, That's where he is. So he blessed him. He said, see, he, "See all the doubt But he can't perceive. He can't trust what the God, spirit of God's telling him because he doesn't want to listen to that anymore." Are you really my son Esau? And he answered, "I am." Then he said, "Bring it near me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you." So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine and he drank. And then it has about five six. I have more references to food later but you get the point now there's over 20 references to food in one column of the page of my bible that's a lot of references a writing teacher would say "You yeah, need some synonyms you need some other ways to say this <laughs> but the bible is so much beyond that and it's saying no we know how to speak the message subtly so it gets into one's senses yes it is the blindness of isaac So as St. John of Sinai was saying, that gluttony is the gateway to all the other passions. And you can see why. It dumbs us down to the level of a beast, which really has a rationale for eating, sex, and sleeping. Is that what we are as the image of God? Gluttony wants to take us to that level, bring us down to that level. One more quote from John of Sinai. He just has this way of writing, which is so, like, graphic. He he talked. Uh, he has gluttony speaking, and he says this. Um, gluttony is speaking. My firstborn son is the agent of sexual immorality. So in other words, like, what are the offspring of gluttony? What does gluttony lead us into is what he's trying to describe here. My firstborn son is the agent of sexual immorality. After him is hardness of heart and then drowsiness. From me comes an ocean of evil thoughts, waves of dirt, depths of impurity that are unknown and lack names. My daughters are sloth, chattiness, close association in speaking, joking. I think that's flirting is what he means, close association in speaking. Um, joking, flippancy, disobeying, a hard neck, being difficult, talking back, insensibility, bondage, pride, vainglory, arrogant boasting, after which comes impure prayer, distracting thoughts, and many times sudden misfortune, which is caught up with depression the most vile of all my daughters. Control your belly, he concludes, before it controls you. You control the stomach, you control the passions. This is the gateway. So, seeing the passion of gluttony, we've seen the problem of gluttony, what is the power, our power over gluttony? What do we do? Um, With all of these passions, we're going to talk about our aim is to become dispassionate. Dispassionate. Now, again, in the way we think of the word passion, we're hearing, oh, be indifferent and apathetic to everything. Be so chill and nonchalant about everything. Oh, you're too excited about everything, man. Calm down. Um, That's not what dispassionate means. Dispassionate means unaffected, unmoved, unlured by the passions. So that when the thought of gluttony comes, you are unmoved. It just goes right through you like a ghost. Because you now have substance in the virtues of God. This is what we're aiming for in dispassion. So um, this is gained by our communion with God. As we commune with God, and obviously you see how prayer leads into our conquering of the passions. um, As we commune with God, we begin to take on the qualities of God as he indwells us and we indwell him. And one of these qualities, we call them virtues. One of these virtues is temperance. The opposite of gluttony is temperance. And temperance, to, in a way, means self-control. When people say control your temper, temperance is this idea of keeping an even keel about things, keeping a balance in things. So it's having control. So the medicine that God wants to give us, if we come to him and ask him for help, Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for mercy. He then, as the doctor, comes with this prescription, with this remedy, with this medicine: temperance. Now, temperance takes a little bit of work to learn how to apply to our lives. I mean, you know, medicine comes with a lot of instructions: take twice a day with food, not two hours before sleep. So, it better make sure you time dinner just right. Um, you know, it comes with instructions. You got to learn how to take it. The medicine of temperance needs a few steps on our part. So here they are. First, pray for temperance. Temperance is a result of prayer. Pray for temperance. I know that sounds obvious because we just talked about how prayer communes with God and we can get some of God's attributes, but specifically in prayer, I really appreciate in the Lord's prayer the line, give us this day our daily bread. Because to me, that is a prayer for temperance. Jesus doesn't say, pray, every and all needs that I have, meet them now. There is a minimalism here. Give us today our daily bread. We're not asking for a week's worth of bread, and nor are we asking for half a day's bread. We're asking for that which we need today. It's a step-by-step looking to God. And I discover that in my life, I often don't live like I pray for daily bread. I live like I am praying for a week's worth of bread every day. And the prayer reminds me that I have a deeper hunger that only God's bread can fill. The bread of the world will not fill that. And so I pray, Lord, Jesus, our daily bread, our bread of life, give us this day, the measure that we need so that our soul is filled and that the stomach is no longer king. So we can pray and think, specifically pray, forgive us our daily bread, we can pray for temperance. Um, we're not consumers of our desires. And prayer teaches us that. We're not consumers of our, of our desires. We are recipients of God's goodness. So when I'm craving excess, to me that's a symptom. When the thought of gluttony comes, it's a symptom that all is not well in my soul. So I must dig deeper. I must dig deeper. It's a symptom. So when, you, when the thought of gluttony comes and the passion of gluttony is trying to take you, realize, okay, Father, give to me this day my daily bread and go deeper. What, what is going on? What do you need to show me? Do not be afraid. Our physician wants to heal. Um, I guess I actually have one more from John of Sinai. He said the same thing, pray for temperance. But this is gluttony speaking. Gluttony admits that you can defeat him by prayer. He says, the one who has the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Remember we said gluttony is just really, we're sometimes seeking comfort. Well, here we read, the one who has the comforter abiding in him, prays to him in opposition to me, gluttony. And the comforter, when entreated, does not permit me, gluttony, to behave passionately. But those who have not partaken of his gift will fail, without fail, will seek their comfort In my sweetness. We have the Holy Spirit or we have the stomach. Second, temper your desires with fasting. Temperance comes from fasting. We temper these outrageous desires we have through fasting. So, this is what we can do as we prepare for Lent. And if you want to fast with me, um, this is what we can do we can fast. If gluttony is the gateway to the passions and fasting helps to train us not to be gluttons, then fasting will take us a long way in the virtues of the Christian life. This is the idea. Fasting helps us to become dispassionate. If you can control... Notice that we're starting with the body. We're starting with something that we all have. We're starting with something that we can actually control more easily than other passions by simply closing the mouth. We're starting with the body. So fast. I went four 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 ideas for how to fast. First, fast physically. That means start with food. Because we can fast other things like internet and news and uh, partying, or I don't mean like you guys are party animals, but socializing too much. I don't know what it is, but like there are all these things that we can fast. We can fast our phones. Um but start physically, fast physically. Those things are great to add on, but the reason for fasting food is because the stomach really does drive more than we realize until we resist it. Fast physically, I mean, starting from food. um, The reason for this is that our food is directly connected to our bodies, and our bodies are directly connected to our souls. I think we tend to think that we are souls that are enclosed in a body, and we tend to think like this body's going to disappear when we die, and then the soul's free. That's not true. Jesus came to us in a body, and Jesus was raised in a body. We will always be bodies, and our souls are not just inside a body. Our souls and our bodies are connected and united to the extent that what I eat may affect how I feel and what I think. And this this is science. I mean, the Bible says this first, <laughs> through implied through fasting, but... Now, science is saying that. What we eat can affect how we think and feel. And actually, there's a huge fasting craze right now in the wellness section of the world. I don't know if you know this. A lot of talk about intermittent fasting, how it clears the mind and it gives you more energy. And okay, all these things are true because when the body is put in its proper place, the soul can thrive. But we too often put that first and then our soul's dragged around with this, oh, I'm overburdened with this sensory food stuff. The body, in other words, then, is the gateway to the soul. One of the best ways to transform the will of our soul to the will of God is to form ourselves physically, and one of those ways is with what we eat. So controlling what I eat can actually bring control in my soul. Um, so fast physically. S- oh, here, here's, a con- here's a consideration. If you can't say no to your stomach... What makes you think that you can say no to Satan? This is why this is a fantastic starting point. Learn to say no to your stomach. Second, fast regularly. Sometimes we fast for special needs. Like there's a big decision to make in our life. Somebody we're praying for really needs help. So we choose to fast, right? Um, But it's been my experience, at least in growing, my experience growing up, is that that was the only way fasting was ever talked about. And it ended up that I never really fasted for those big things, because when I would randomly and rarely fast, it was so hard, I hated myself in my life. So then I learned that ancient Christians fasted regularly, on a schedule, and that that can teach us the gift of fasting, Because at first, I remember confessing this to a friend, I dreaded fast days. Every morning, my God like, oh, it's a fast day. And it was just hard. But then you learn as you go, and you learn how to do this and how not to do it. And by fasting regularly, it becomes a pattern in which you have control over the soul. Now, fasting regularly uh, looks like this. Um, You can fast weekly, Fridays, for example. Ancient Christians did Wednesdays and Fridays. So you can choose to do two days a week. You can choose to do one day a week. Friday, because it's the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a good one to say, in remembrance of my Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to fast. Um, by the way, one of the big trends right now in intermittent fasting is fasting two days a week. It's called the 5-2 method. You fast, or you eat normally five days, and then you can restrict yourself to 500 less calories two days a week. And I've I've read a bunch of this stuff, and I'm like... Every time I'm reading it, all they do is cite science for why this is a good idea. And the whole time I'm getting livid. I'm like, dude, this isn't new. Like science didn't discover this. People have been doing this for ages and it's been revealed to us by God. The Jews before Christians fasted two days a week. So the Christians, not to be outdone by the Jews, fasted at least two days a week. Um, this has been going on forever. We are the champs. Our lineage, at least, is the champ of the 5-2 method. How about that? God knows what he's doing, friends. He knows what he's doing when he invites us to fast. Um, So we fast regularly. You can fast weekly, you can fast monthly, or you can fast seasonally. For example, Advent, Lent. You can fast seasonally. Um, That's for you, that's between you and God. There's no right way to do this. It's for what you want to do. Uh, Third, fast simply. So we fast physically, we fast regularly, we fast simply. Fasting simply means just stop thinking about food all the time. I mean, it's amazing how much of our mental energy is going to when is my next meal, when is it, and what is it. How much of your morning can be packing your food for the workday or energy given to f- cooking at night or just shopping and making that list. And oh, it's just, uh, How much energy goes to food? Fast simply it enables us to think about food less, and it's also, the point of fasting is to stop thinking about food. So don't go into fasting with all this, like, what can I eat, what can I not, and think obsessively about that. That was my early struggle. Um, I'm learning to try to just be less legalistic about my own laws on fasting. Because sometimes you can't control it. You're at a birthday party. You're, whatever's going on, someone makes you something, and you're like not going to not eat that in front of them, right? Um, um, it, the idea of fasting is to think less about food. So just do this simply Uh, here, one of the dangers is that we turn fasting into dieting. Suddenly it's like, it's, it's no different than like the whole 30 diet or something. It's like, well, I'm going to fast. And then we're like all super consumed with labels and we're super consumed with, I can't break this. And a fast is not a diet. Okay. It's not the same thing. You diet for yourself. You fast for your soul. Fasting can be a good way of dieting, but you don't approach it as a diet because diets are rule-oriented. In fact, there's a story from someone who just freely shared with me that they once were on a certain fast in which they couldn't eat bread and balked at taking communion because there was bread. That's not how fasting should work. It's not like a diet, okay? So we do this simply. Um, Angela Tilby said this. She said, we are so terrified of gluttony that we become gluttonous for the perfect diet. We can actually get to a point where we've become, I think as a culture, the, the health and wellness culture has become gluttons over healthy eating. Thinking about food obsessively, talking about what is good for us and what's not for us. Food is a king subject. We can become gluttonous over dieting. So let's fast simply, not do this like you do a diet. Fourth, fast moderately. This is this to me saved fasting. Um, fast moderately. I've heard people say they can't go a whole day without food. Cool. Most Christians don't, actually. Most fastings are not done completely without food and water. A lot of people, the strong fasters boast that and promote that, and that's why we hear that a lot. But actually, the average person doesn't fast that way. And if you're weak like me, you don't have to go without food all day. That's not what a fast has to be. You fast moderately. This is, this is illustrated by a story from the desert fathers in Egypt in the fourth century. Um, there was always talk about, like, How your, what's the right way to fast? And I love this story. One young monk said to his older monk, am I right to eat one loaf of bread Every other day? Intense fast, one loaf of bread every other day. The older monk said, no. It's better to eat half a loaf every day. So it's not about going big on a big fast day and then eating big on the non-fast days. It's about living more of this pattern of, I'm going to just continually seek to control and restrict what goes into my stomach. Fasting moderately, um, another desert father said, eat once a day. That is better than severe fasting for he who fasts long is often proud of his achievement. I did it. I went a whole day without food. I wonder how many other goons out there can do that. Oh, I'm looking around the church. Nope. I get, I bet nobody here gives up food a whole day every week. Ouch. You're just used fasting to get to another passion. Pride. Um, so eating, fasting moderately is eat. But when you eat, follow these simple guidelines. Eat less. If you like two cups of coffee, or ten, uh, drink one or five. Like reduce, do less. That's a, that's a simple way to fast. You don't have to just go crazy with no caffeine that day. Um, eat less often. Try removing one meal. Try eliminating snacking. That was the big one for me. Just like eliminate food between the times you're supposed to eat. Uh, Feel hunger. You should feel hunger. You should feel the agony of the stomach's deprivation. That's a good fast. You should at least feel that at some point in your fast. Um, Because we usually, as Americans, we rarely feel hunger. And then third, eat simply. That means don't eat out. Don't, um, if you have toast and you usually butter it, unbutter your toast. If you like lots of sauces on your meat, have no sauces on your meat. Just try to eat plainly. Um, And then if you drink, stop drinking. Um, That's a good way to fast as well. So covering some of those basic things. Um, There you go. So fast physically, fast simply, fast regularly, and fast moderately. But brothers and sisters... I don't want to close you with this thought of, oh my goodness, food is evil. Food is not evil. Food is a blessing. Food's given to us by God. And we should appreciate and revel in a good, perfectly roasted salmon, maple glazed and pecan encrusted. Um, we should rejoice in those things. But here's the pattern we're given. We're given patterns of feasting. Enjoy God's good fruits and enjoy them and eat them. But we're also given the pattern of fasting. Abstain from them so that we better enjoy them rather than feel entitled to them. That's the idea. So, Lord, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.